Special welcome to all of our visitors here this morning. Didn't get a chance to welcome you by name this morning. There's a lot of people, but um, I suppose welcome to those who've travelled the furthest. To the Kaufman's up the back. Good to see you guys here with us. We look forward to your time as well. This morning we are in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 36. Uh, we're continuing on a short, short series. Turns out it's going to be about three messages long. And the uh, idea is centered around Isaiah chapter 36 and the conflict we read about there. Isaiah chapter 36, we're going to read for an introduction just the first four verses. Isaiah 36 and verse 1. Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the defensed cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem unto King Hezekiah with a great army. And he stood in the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. Then came forth unto him Eliakim, Hilkiah's son, which was over the house, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah Asaph's son, the recorder. And Rabshakeh said unto them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? Let's pray and we'll commit our time to the Lord. Our Father, we are a blessed people. We thank you this morning that we could come and we can celebrate the Lord's table. We can sing about your praises, Lord, but uh, they would be empty activities if it wasn't for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross. We thank you, Lord, that we can come and worship you for these things. Uh, we ask, Lord, that you would help us uh, now that we would turn our mind upon the word. Uh, we pray that it would be a way that we could be more like you. And we pray that we might find this morning some encouragement, Lord, as we have to go through the spiritual warfare day by day. And so we commit ourselves to you this morning. We ask, Lord, that your spirit would show us truth from the word. And I pray that you would be with me as I preach as well. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Rabshakeh, the Assyrian general, had arrived outside the walls of Jerusalem. His location is very specific there at the end of verse 2. But before he begins a physical battle, he resorted to a very effective, unsettling tactic. Uh, the Syrian general Rabshakeh had a goal. And that goal is stated out for us, or set out for us in verse 4. It says, And Rabshakeh said unto them, Say ye now to Hezekiah, thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? His goal was to shake the confidence of Hezekiah and to shake the confidence of those people who were trusting in Hezekiah's words. And so his goal was to shake faith. And those in conflicts of every, in every era have recognized the power of psychological warfare and we looked into this a little bit the history of this last time we considered this story last time i preached on sunday morning we had a look at how it's also used by those who want to try and conquer our faith psychological warfare in the spiritual battle in john chapter 15 the lord jesus christ says this remember the word that i said unto you the servant is not greater than his lord if they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, 
because they know not him that sent me. As Jesus was hated by the world, so the faith of those who trust in Jesus is hated by the world. Sometimes it can be passed off as, oh, it's just your opinion. But if we have a true biblical faith which works out from us, which affects people, then quite soon people will be uncomfortable with that faith as it's shown out into the world. Unless you are hiding your faith, I'm sure you will understand the experience of people attacking your faith. We saw last time that Rabshakeh's strategies are still employed by those who would trouble us. And we saw last time that he sought to use the tactic of isolation to erode their faith. In Isaiah chapter 36 and verse 6, we read the words of the Assyrian general. He says, Lo, thou trustest in the staff of this broken reed on Egypt, whereon if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all that trust in him. And so Rabshakeh tries to get Israel, tries to get the Jews to say, We're alone. There's no one here to help us. And we were reminded when we looked at that, that it's not our responsibility, it's not our faith to place our trust in people. But if we are specific about it, we have to place our trust in the God who sometimes uses people. So we shouldn't be totally cynical of people, but our faith shouldn't be in people. It should be in God. And if so, it won't matter if we're alone, will it? Rabshakeh also cited their supposed inconsistency to weaken their faith. In verse 7, he went on to say, But if thou say to me, We trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah hath taken away? And said to Judah and to Jerusalem, Ye shall worship before this altar. And we saw last time that Rabshakeh tries to say, Hezekiah has been crippling you in a religious way because he's taken away all the other altars around the nation of Israel and Judah at the time. And we remember that the unsaved don't always understand the Christian life. And so we, be, we need to be careful uh, taking at face value their criticisms of Christianity. But the onslaught continued. Rabshakeh aggressively and relentlessly tries to target their faith with more strategies. And as we'll see today, these strategies are not consigned to ancient history. But these are things that people still use today to try and shake our faith. The next tactic that Rabshakeh tried to use was the tactic of intimidation. Have a look in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 36. He says, Now therefore give pledges, I pray thee, to my master the king of Assyria, and I will give thee two thousand horses, if thou be able on thy part to set riders upon them. How then wilt thou turn away the face of one captain of the least of my master's servants and put thy trust on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Rabshakeh mockingly offers to provide Jerusalem with 2,000 horses. And he, he says to them here, I'll give you 2,000 horses. You probably can't even supply the riders to sit on the 2,000 horses. But even if you could... You couldn't even turn away one little portion of the least of our army. You wouldn't stop the weakest part of the Assyrian army, even if we gave you horses to ride on. And you think, he says to the Jews, that Egyptian horsemen are going to be able to help you? 
or that them supplying you with chariots or horses are going to be able to do any good for you? Now, Rabshakeh was right, and neither Israel's nor Egypt's armies could stand up to the Assyrian army. They were dwarfed in number, they were inferior in experience, and they were hopelessly unequipped as an army. There was no way that they could stand up to the Assyrian army. He was right. Neither Israel nor Egypt could stand up to Assyria. But was this a good reason for the Jews to abandon their faith? Well, let's consider the true nature of the faith of the Jews, first of all. If you remember from last time, 2 Chronicles chapter 32 provides us with a description of the preparations before Rabshakeh arrived. And what that does is it gives us an insight into the thinking of the people. So when Rabshakeh tries to describe where their faith was, it helps us to go back to first, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 32 and say, well, is that really what they were trusting in? So let's go there now, 2 Chronicles chapter 32. And we'll just read the first eight verses of the chapter, 2 Chronicles 32. It's nice to not have to take an Assyrian general's perspective on the people of God's faith. 2 Chronicles 32 and verse 1. After these things and the establishment thereof, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered into Judah and encamped against the fenced cities and thought to win them for himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib was come and that he was purposed to fight against Jerusalem, he took counsel with his princes and his mighty men to stop the waters of the fountains which were without the city, and they did help him. So there was gathered much people together who stopped all the fountains and the brook that ran through the midst of the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? And he strengthened himself and built up all the wall that was broken and raised it up to the towers and another wall without and repaired Milo in the city of David and made darts and shields in abundance. And he set captains of war over the people and gathered them together to him in the street of the gate of the city and spake comfortably to them, saying, Be strong and courageous. Be not afraid nor dismayed for the king of Assyria, nor for all the multitude that is with him, for there be more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people rested themselves upon the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. And so Hezekiah's trust and consequently the trust of the people with him was squarely upon the Lord their God. Now this interestingly didn't mean that Hezekiah did nothing to prepare for Sennacherib's arrival. We read just in that passage there that he stopped the water supply outside the walls of the city. We also read that he, when you stop the water supply, you have to make sure the city still has a water supply. Hezekiah's tunnel is still a feat of engineering admired today. And it was cut a water course within the city so that the people inside the walls could still sustain themselves through a siege. Hezekiah repaired and extended the city walls. Hezekiah made darts, which is a reference to projectile weapons and shields in abundance. And so Hezekiah made all of these preparations before 
Sennacherib or his general Rabshakeh arrived. And so I think that shows to us that people of faith are still wise and industrious people. Now, faith is no excuse for laziness. But despite their preparations, or alongside their preparations, their trust was in the Lord to fight for them. Notice in verse 8 it says, With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And so in that the Lord could help them, he could help their preparations to be effective, the preparations they had made, or he could just fight their battles for them. The Lord could help their strength to prevail or the Lord could just win the battle by himself. And Hezekiah understood this. This is something that we need to remember about our faith as well. Although God is invisible, he is not powerless against physical enemies. We understand the difference there. Although God is invisible, he is not powerless against physical enemies or powerless in physical situations. I want to turn to another passage in the Old Testament that gives a beautiful, powerful illustration of this. And that's over in 2 Kings chapter 6. While you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of a background. Elisha was causing problems for the king of Syria, a different king. And the problem was that wherever the king of Assyria, wherever the king of Syria tried to attack Israel... Elisha would tell the king his plans. So the king of Syria would say, well, we're going to surprise them around this corner. And when they got around that corner, the army of Israel was already there waiting for them. And then they thought, oh, we'll invade from this way and we'll go under the cover of darkness. And when they did it, they found that Israel had already dodged them and gone around the back. And so when they found out or when the king found out that Elisha, the prophet, had been informing their enemies about what was happening he sent his army against the prophet now if you think logically about that i don't know why he thought that elijah wouldn't already know that because he's been foretelling all of his moves already but nevertheless second kings chapter 6 verses 14 to 16 therefore sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host and they came by night and compassed the city about. And when the servant of the man of God, so the servant of Elisha, was risen early and gone forth, behold, an host compassed the city with both horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? And he answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. It's an interesting situation, isn't it? You've got a massive army surrounding one prophet and his servant. That's an outnumbered fight. And then that one prophet says to his servant, don't worry, there's more with us than with them. (laughs) I'm sure that wouldn't have comforted the servant very much. And I think that's why Elisha goes on to give verse 17. We read in 2 Kings 6, 17, And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. There was more with Elisha than was with the king of Syria. 
And as that story turned out, the army was made blind in Elisha's presence. And Elisha led that whole army, just like leading one horse, up into the presence of the army of Israel, where they were fed and watered and sent home. You see, brethren, the power behind our faith may not be visible, but it's always present. Because the power behind our faith is the Lord. And in that way, it doesn't matter the size or the power of the enemy that we have to face. It doesn't matter how many are on the other side. It doesn't matter how strong they are. It doesn't matter how even weak we are in their face. All that matters is which side is the Lord on. And so intimidation couldn't unsettle Hezekiah's faith. He said in similar words, there be more with us than against us because he knew that the Lord was with him. And so intimidation couldn't unsettle Hezekiah's faith nor the faith of the people in the city. And the fourth strategy that Rabshakeh, the, the Assyrian general, employs is impersonation. If we go back to Isaiah chapter 36... This time we'll read verse 10. Rabshakeh doesn't wait for an answer to any of these challenges. He just keeps layering on the criticism one after another. In verse 10 it says, And now, and am I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? The Lord said unto me, Go up against this land to destroy it. Rabshakeh the general claims to be an instrument of God's judgment. And this was close to the truth. It was close. The rebellious northern kingdom, he was the instrument of judgment for. He had judged and he had taken away and many of the cities of Judah had been troubled by him as well. But Judah... The nation that was contained within the walls of Jerusalem at this time, under the leadership of Hezekiah, had returned to the Lord. Have a look over in 2 Chronicles chapter 30 this time. 2 Chronicles chapter 30. We read the story of their repentance. Second Chronicles chapter 30 and we're going to read from verse 6. Second Chronicles chapter 30 and verse 6. So the posts, or in Australian we would say, so the posties went with the letters from the king and his princes throughout all Israel and Judah. And according to the commandment of the king, saying, Ye children of Israel, turn again unto the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and he will return to the remnant of you that are escaped out of the hand of the kings of Assyria. There they are. Be not ye like your fathers and like your brethren, which trespassed against the Lord God of their fathers, who therefore gave them up to desolation as ye see. Now be not stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves unto the Lord and enter into his sanctuary, which he has sanctified forever. And serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. For if ye turn again unto the Lord, your brethren and your children shall find compassion before them, that lead them captive, so that they shall come again into this land. For the Lord your God is gracious 
and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return unto him. So the posts passed from city to city throughout the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, even unto Zebulun. But they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. Nevertheless, divers of Asher and Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. Also in Judah, the hand of God was to give them one heart to do the commandment of the king and of the princes by the word of the Lord. And so those who were in Jerusalem had heeded the rebuke and they had repented. And as a result, just in line with the promise of God, the fierceness of his wrath was turned away from them. Rabshakeh claimed to be God's messenger of judgment to Jerusalem, but God had turned away his judgment from Jerusalem because of their repentance. And for the Jews to fear that God would still judge them after forgiveness and restoration would have been simply accusing God of inconsistency and lying. For them to hear Rabshakeh's challenge and say, maybe God's going to judge us when God had already pardoned them for their sin, would have been to accuse God of inconsistency. And there is no sign that Judah believed Rabshakeh was sent from God to Jerusalem. They stayed themselves and didn't give in to this taunt. But our vulnerability to this kind of attack depends largely on our trust in God's forgiveness, just as theirs did. And we must concede that sometimes lingering guilt over sins that are past can cause us to think that God is judging, when in fact he's not. Because we are sinners, we must have a healthy trust in God's forgiveness, a very healthy trust in the forgiveness of God. It is something which we must turn to all too often, the forgiveness of God. But you know, we leave ourselves open to all manner of doubt and weakness if we, al- if we allow ourselves to linger in our guilt after forgiveness has taken place. After we've been to the Lord and been forgiven, we leave ourselves open to any attacks if we go back and doubt that forgiveness. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 are the verses that I know I cling to so often. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 say, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And brethren, this is a simple equation. If we have confessed our sins as Christians, if we have confessed our sins, agreed with God that they are sinful and that they are wrong, then the Bible promises us that he has forgiven our sins. They're forgiven. So is it spiritual or humble to maintain our own guilt when God has forgiven? No, it's not. You see, sometimes we can get guilt wrong. Sometimes we can see guilt as spiritual when in fact it's not. Guilt in itself is not necessarily a sign of humility 
or spirituality. Guilt indicates to us either the need to repent or that we doubt the forgiveness that was given when we did repent. Guilt is not a long-term accommodation, if I can put it that way. It should drive us to repentance or we should get rid of it if God has promised us forgiveness. Strong faith in God is confident in the forgiveness of God. And I was thinking about this and meditating upon it and it made me think that sometimes it is hard to move on from guilt. When we feel guilty, when we've done something that we know is wrong, and especially when we have knowingly done something that was wrong, it might feel like we're making light of our sin if we move on from our guilt too quickly. And I can sympathize with that thought. But it is wrong for us to maintain our guilt when we are forgiven. That's wrong. And so perhaps there is another solution. Perhaps there's an alternative. Perhaps the solution is thankfulness. Perhaps the solution is gratitude. Because through gratitude, we can both reflect on our previous guilt, remembering both our sin and also the forgiveness that we were given. And in that way, through gratitude, through thankfulness, we don't move on from our sin as if it's a light thing, but also we don't doubt the forgiveness that God has given to us. We meditate on them both together and it causes us to give, to give thanks to God. It doesn't cripple our spiritual walk, but it strengthens our spiritual walk. And so it's right not to make light of our sin, but it's wrong to dwell in guilt when we're forgiven. So be thankful for the forgiveness of God. Rabshakeh claimed to be God's tool of judgment, but he was too late because the people had already repented. They'd already turned back to their God and because they'd turned back to God, God was squarely with them. And so although he impersonated a judge sent from God, he was a liar come to unsettle those with faith. And sometimes people who try to trouble our faith or the wicked one who tries to trouble our faith points to real failures in our lives to do it. Sometimes he doesn't have to lie to point out our failure. And we don't have to lie to argue against him in saying, no, we're not a failure. What we have to do is point to the forgiveness of God. We have to say that because Jesus died for me, you can't accuse me anymore. I have taken that to the Lord. I'm not guilty of that anymore. I'm forgiven. And as a result of that, you can't hold me accountable for that anymore. And so Rabshakeh, when he came to the walls, we've seen so far, has tried isolation. He's tried interrogation. He's tried intimidation. And he's tried impersonation. And there are two more tactics in his attack, which we'll have a look at next time we come to this passage. But by way of application... How would you be holding out on that wall? If you were standing there listening to the taunts of that general, the decorated Assyrian general trying to intimidate you by his show of force, trying to target your guilt for sins that are past, how would you be holding out? Now, your faith is a very important thing. 
By faith we please God. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Faith is a very important thing. And weak faith can't hold out on the wall. You need to know the God that you believe in. You need to know his power. Otherwise, you'll be intimidated. You need to know that though God is invisible, he's a strong God and he's able to help you through anything. You need to know the doctrines of his word. You need to know doctrines like forgiveness, like redemption. You need to know those doctrines. Otherwise, you'll be, in, you'll be fooled by impersonators, people who come saying that they were sent by God. Brethren, Nate, make no mistake that your faith is under siege. It is. And if your faith is not growing, it's in danger of failing. We have to be very careful how we tread as Christians. 1 Thessalonians, I'm closing with this, it gives us a good challenge. It says, Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day, that is those of us who are enlightened with the truth, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. See, brethren, we know that there's a spiritual battle. We're told about it in the Word. We're enlightened to these facts. We are children of the light. We know we're in a spiritual battle. Growing in our knowledge of God, our knowledge of the doctrines of his word, are wise for soldiers who know they're in a battle. It would be foolish of us to be enlightened to the fact that there is a battle and then not spend time growing in our knowledge of God. Not spend time growing in our knowledge of the doctrines of God. That would be being a child of the light and walking in darkness. That would be foolish. Now I'm sure that you can see the similarity in the strategy between the Assyrian and the Australian attacks on our faith. And there are just two more that we're going to look at, but we're going to have to save those for next time. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that uh, you are in heaven. Uh, Lord, we know that you are acquainted with the things that we go through. Lord, you know who we are. And we pray, Lord, that you would encourage us, help us to remember that you're ever present. And Father, we pray that you would uh, encourage us with the truth of your word. Uh, Father, may it be the word that instructs our walk. Uh, Lord, we thank you for our time this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.